0: Welcome to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by The Pulp Net, your link to the online world of the pulp magazines, since 1996, online at ThePulp.net. This pulp event podcast features a panel discussion of the thrilling heroes of standard magazines, pulps, and comics. The panel consists of Will Murray, pulp historian, and author of The New Adventures of Doc Savage and Tarzan. Michelle Nolan, longtime journalist, pop culture columnist, and 2014 Inkpot Award winner, and popular culture professor Garen Roberts, who was awarded the Muncie in 2013. Paul Fasts, Mike Chom co introduces the panel. Will, uh, well, everyone knows, is Doc and Tarzan writer, and a uh, long standing authority on. Popular culture and pulp fiction. Michelle's written a bunch about comics, a long-time columnist for the Comic Buyers Guide, and uh, she's also written some books on <coughs> books and sports fiction. Guerin, uh, uh has is a uh, professor of English and popular culture, has uh, many many uh, collections of pulp fiction uh, that he's uh, introduced and edited. And uh, he also put together one of the leading textbooks uh, on science fiction used in college, *Prentice Hall*. Great.
1: Anthology of Science Fiction. Anthology of
0: Science Fiction. So here they go. I'm going to
2: briefly start this with a uh, short background on thrilling. Um, no, no publisher in um, American history, to the best of my knowledge, has run, regardless of the quality of this, I won't say that it's the best fiction, but has run um, more versatile fiction. I mean, Street and Smith obviously printed the most fiction, but when it comes to comic book, well, pulps first, then comic books, then paperbacks, which are all very distinct marketing decisions, all very unusually different marketing decisions. There was a brief about, uh, in Thrilling's case, 15-year uh, overlap between their uh, their three uh, genres, of, of, if you will, of the publication. In Thrill- 1931, uh, Ned Pines decided to expand from, was it College Humor, Will? Yeah. College Humor um, and a couple of other magazines to the pulp. Uh, <laughs> The burgeoning pulp uh, market and he ran uh, the company from 1931 to the pulp wise till 58 with the last of the Texas Rangers and Jim Hatfield and Ranch Romances which was their best-selling pulp for a long time Um, lasted till 1971 largely with reprints Um, comic books were probably in terms of in terms of excellence in some ways, the comic books are by far the most memorable aspects of pop culture because Alec Schoenberg, probably the most frenetic and talented artist comic book-wise, not fine art, but comic book-wise, did most of the covers for what they called Nidor or better or standard comics from in the 40s. And he even worked into the 50s on other genres. The heroes all disappeared in 49, 48, 49. Um, The uh, Popular Library actually printed, uh, I think it was all reprints, just about. I mean, there weren't too many originals. Yeah, the original, yeah. Um, But Popular Library didn't have the quality of a a Bantam or a Valentine. but Popular Library printed an immense number of paperbacks, and they were probably the best example of sexed-up literature in American history. They would take legitimate literature, such as the sports novel The Hero by Millard Lampel, and they made it... This novel didn't have an iota of sex in it to speak of. I mean, it probably had some veiled references, but it wasn't a sex story. The cover looks like the hero is being propositioned by somebody. and and And, and, and there was a... Well, I'm getting in the weeds here, but there was a um, um, order that went out in the uh, um, late for- mid40s, late 40s on the paperbacks before they tamed it down. We want boobs and lakes. And it was in some ways more garish than Fiction House because Fiction House never printed literature. They printed escape fiction only, but popular library printed literature and the covers are unbelievably different from what's inside. Um, Will, what do you have to, what do you think is, of the three uh, genres, and popular library went for way after the comic, comics disappeared in 59, or in Dennis Sumanis' case, transferred to different ownership. Uh, The pulps disappeared, like I said, in 58, except ranch romances. Paperbacks continued what into the 80s under the Popular Library. Yeah, yeah. At least, well, the 70s anyway. Well, but paperbacks continued a long time, and uh, you know, I was already out of college when they were still going very strong. Um, okay, well, what do you think of the three? Um, I'm trying to approach it from a broad standpoint. I think the comic books were in many ways their best publications. Um, relative to the market they no, serve. No, I don't agree with that at all. Okay, what do you have okay, yeah, I'm at I it? I mean,
3: the comic books didn't have as strong... had a good editor, but they, they were doing fairly relatively generic comics at that time. That's true. Yeah. You know, that you didn't have the depth of story that Weisinger and Schiff brought to DC. You didn't have the versatility and creativity that, that Joe Simon and Stan Lee brought to, to Timely Comics. That's true. I agree. Uh, so, in that sense, I think they were interesting comics in that they were very uh, much inspired by their pulp line, but they, they didn't seem to invest a lot into them. And I think they saw that they probably saw comics as many did as a fad, so they didn't try to build the line, they just tried to
2: exploit the, 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 mark, the commercial opportunity. But remember one thing, Will, in the 40s during World War II, the comic books never got cut back. The pulps got disastrously cut back. So I think that says a lot. Well it says where the money was going. Well that was, I was speaking of money not quality. Yeah.
3: Yeah.
1: Perhaps the the paper link that was used for comics didn't require nearly as much paper as a Paul magazine either. No it didn't. Yeah. You know you were right about uh, Popular Library all the wonderful Captain future reprints and all that They were lousy paperbacks. They fell apart. They fell apart today. The binding, the glue went to hell on them.
3: And they used repurposed covers from Perry Rodin in Germany Mm -hmm. at that point. And they were often using repurposed pulp covers in the the 50s, in the 40s. So, you know, they they were doing them as cheaply as possible. Well, they
2: were pulp literature reprinted Mm -hmm. for the uh, market that no longer had pulps. But they still had uh, guys that liked to read westerns Mm -hmm. and. gals that like to read ranch romances and, uh, and other Dino and type, you know, western romance type stories, and there was, um, you know, I, I don't think they cared about them, they, they were meant for one owner, one reading, they, they if you go into a used bookstore that has a lot of paperbacks, the ones in the worst condition are almost invariably popular library, I can vouch for that. <laughs> Um, Garen what do you what do you have to say about thrilling in general? Well a, a couple of things
1: uh, first of all I'm happy to listen to you
2: two because
1: uh, I, I really you know we, we just saw in the last panel
2: I wish one of my teachers would hear you say that um, back in the day. <laughs> a, a wealth
1: of information and uh, just I'm thinking about the last panel and different perspectives and some actually some very insightful kind of unique ideas and um, I'm going to be in line tomorrow to buy John's book. It's adorable. But, um, and Nathan, at the end, not to change the topic, uh, I love that guy because he comes from my school of thinking about cultural history and this kind of stuff. And thinking yeah, he's about very talented. And I love his book. His book uh, should have won some kind of award from some national press. I really think it it's that great, good. Great book. But anyway, in regard to thrilling, um, it's fun material. I liked what maybe you wrote and somebody else I saw on the, on the website wrote about how it may not have been the best of all pulp fiction that ever came out, but it had its moments, and it lasted a long time. And you think about some of the authors they had in their stable, you think of uh, people who I'm interested in but I'm not an expert on, uh, Edmund Hamilton, Lee Brackett, recently been doing lots of research. Henry Cutner. Henry Kuttner. Tony, we just Tons we just, of Cutner. We've just completed the second volume with Steve Hafner of... Uh, which goes back to that panel we just came from. We just the, the Watcher at the Door comes out, hopefully, for World Fantasy in October. And it's a beautiful volume again. Second volume. The first one's out of print, The Terror in the House. And what we find out is just what they said on the first panel. Everybody thinks that Lovecraft influenced everybody. And I love Lovecraft. Don't get me wrong. And we'll talk about that tomorrow. But it's amazing how much Poe had as much or more influence on Henry Kuttner. Very much so. The Kuttner stories are, even though he loved, and he, he, he corresponded with Lovecraft, they were talking about March of 37, just in the last couple months of his life, Robert Block introduced him via correspondence to Lovecraft, and he hung on to Lovecraft, and he was crushed a couple months later when Lovecraft died. And so he did a series on Off the Topic. But the influence and complexities of all these things, So you got Cutner, and you've also got a young aspiring writer who, by his own description, was a pain in the ass to the other writers because he was such a pest, and that was Ray Bradbury.
2: And Louis L'Amour too.
1: That's right. Yeah. So you guys. Louis L'Amour started
2: his career almost entirely with Standard, and they almost never cover featured him Mm -hmm. for over ten years. There was a sports pulp where there were seven stories in the pulp and his was the only one that didn't get his name on the cover. Yeah. And it wasn't a bad story. I mean, it was okay. He, he didn't know football. I was going to make one other uh, point out that I'm going to ask Will to expand upon. Standard did something in pulps that other publishers didn't want to do, and that's they depended on a stable of authors who were very loyal to Leo Margulis, the executive editor, and If you take out the sports pulps and the romance pulps, you're left with, there's, Standard did about 3,776 pulps, give or take. But the, I've spent untold amounts of time getting all these down in an index, okay? Um, Standard did over, take away the romance and sports, which rarely had continuing characters from any publisher, okay? Take those away. Standard in the other genres did over one, well over one thousand hero characters in the western and, and well, shall we say, costume hero for a better word, phrase, genres. One thousand plus stories, most mostly very long stories, um, about heroes. And granted, they weren't as, um, shall we say, as as well done as dime detective or some of the other um, pulp companies. But the heroes in Standard were unbelievably, I mean, it was an unbelievably prolific thing to have that many heroes. And they were roughly evenly divided between the Westerns and the other heroes. I call them superheroes just because they're mostly unrealistic people. But um, the Western characters actually were much more realistic in the Standard Pulps than the uh, hero heroes. And I'm one who's been utterly fascinated from both the social and political aspect of the, what I call the Robin Hood mythos, which is essentially, does one human being, no matter how talented they are, have the right to be judge, jury, and executioner? It's a fascinating thing, because you're talking about who the villain is and all this. It's way too long to discuss, but it's partly involved with standard. Anyway, it's a remarkable, it's one out of three Standard pulps taking away sports and romance. One out of three Standard Pulse had a regular hero, almost always cover featured, and the author was, it's an amazing record. Will, what do you have to say about that? No, well, you just said it. Oh, <laughs> well, I mean, can you add anything to it? that I... Well, yeah, I could add a lot to it. Okay, you please know, do. But, you know, <laughs> I wouldn't know where
3: to start. Um, I mean, you know, the shadow at Street and Smith may have saved the pulp magazine industry for a decade of the 1930s and into the 40s by momentum, because pulps were dying with the Depression. People just didn't have the the 20 or 25 or 15 or 10 Even cents. a dime, the, and so you know the success of thrilling was partly because it was a dime price, and. You know, the Shadow was an update of the old dime novel characters that would come out every month in dime novel form, and when it was a hit, Margulies and Ned Pines they were the first to copy it. Walter Gibson told the story that when the Shadow started to go big, they went to Street. He went to Street and Smith and his editor too, and said, "You know, we got to do something called the Phantom, because if we don't, someone will." And they dithered. Street and Smith dithered, and and. Margulies and Pines came out with the Phantom Detective, and that was that. the The name was taken, and that was the first rival. It was that predated Doc Savage by a, a hair, but it predated Doc Savage. And once a second publisher enters into something, you know they're hearing what the circulation is from somebody, distributors, and you know the Phantom was was the Phantom ran longer than the Shadow, and Doc just didn't rack up as many novels because it was bi-monthly for a long period of time, but. Uh, uh, very successful magazine um, with a core of writers, and then later a revolving door of writers. But <laughs> they always had certain writers who would be there as a spine for years and years. And they would change spines, and they would have you know. Henry Cutner did a couple of Phantom Detectives. Who um, didn't? Henry? Yeah, well, who, who we, didn't? well, you know, we're not sure who didn't, but you know, we're not sure who did. In a lot of cases, we just have a lot of a, a lot of known suspects, and uh, you know. They started the Lone Eagle um, not long after, the probably, I think the Lone eagle, eagle may have predated G8, I've forgotten now. It's close. It's close. Yeah. By one month. By They're one month. Yeah, okay. So, you know, they jumped into that field. The Lone Eagle, you know, did pretty well. He lasted long enough as a World War One hero that he was transitioned to a World War Two hero. 75 when, total issues. When, when you know, um, World War II out, broke out, they immediately said we're, we're going to the modern day. They didn't do that with G8. They should have, but they didn't. Um, and they had a lot of obscure characters who, who lasted short periods of time. The one that I, I think is most, well, you know, this was very pioneering. G-Men, starring Dan Fowler. That was probably their best written series in terms of the quality of the writing, because they, they brought in a, a, a military guy, major... Malcolm no Major, Major uh, George Fielding Elliott. George Fielding, yeah. uh, and he wrote the early Dan Fowlers. What's interesting is they announced that magazine as Secret Service detective stories. And then they delayed it. And I don't know what was going on there, but they went, the, I think what happened is the G Men and, and J. Edgar Herbert became very big. The well, movie G Men and Jimmy G-Man. Cagney is why I think why I don't, that, don't know for I sure but I think I that's why they changed. That. It, I've And so suddenly they said, G-Men, that's better than Secret Service detective stories. Uh, And they were very mature stories compared to The Phantom and the other stuff.
2: I'm gonna add something to that. Dan Fowler is probably the most underrated hero in all of Pulpdom. Absolutely. And the reason I say that is here was a man, now granted his stories had somewhat stereotypical American patriotism and they Made J. Edgar Hoover. You know, there were no talk of dresses and stuff like that. They made Jay Edgar Hoover sound like God. But be that as it may, Dan Fowler was an amazingly creative. The stories are creative. He gets into the damnedest traps, and you really think this is it for Dan Fowler. I mean, he—they're very creative traps, and and uh, the stories hold your interest. They don't quit. And you can sit, I tried to go to sleep reading a Dan Fowler, and but unfortunately, for my work years ago when I was a newspaper editor, if Dan Fowler, if you start a Dan Fowler story, it's going to be hard to finish. <laughs> I, I mean it. And and I don't know if, Will, you like them as much as I do, but they're darn good stories. They are. and oh, um, there's a awesome. great character. And his partner, Larry, oh, what's his name, Larry, I can't remember his name. Kendall. Oh, Kendall. Larry Kendall. Ken. Great, great, great sidekick. Wonderful sidekick. There's a famous, Jan, there was a famous Dan Fowler story back in the day that I know from
3: a, a, a guy who read pulps. It was called "Bloody Bullets," and you wouldn't tell it from the blurb or the thing, but it's about an attempt to assassinate President Roosevelt. And when that was published, that was considered a very daring story for a pulp magazine mm-hmm. because you know it was it was you just didn't do that in 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 popular. Might nature. be the best Dan Fowler. Yeah, great. It might be one of the best Dan Fowlers because it was very it was you know it was like you know. That movie suddenly with Frank Sinatra, oh, yeah. you know, 54. The, but you, no, was it more like fifty-eight or something? Mm, was fifty-four? Maybe well, I don't know. But it was, it was it was it was a few years before the Kennedy assassination. It was about an attempt to assassinate the president. Same ballpark. Right? Yeah, same okay. ballpark. Um, the, the the interesting one, Captain Future, is very interesting. Um, very popular with science fiction fans. I kept the, the character was in development allegedly when the first World Fantasy Convention. Uh, took place in New York in '39. I think it was March, but I'm not. Don't quote me on the on the month. And Ma- Leo Margulies and and Mort Weisinger um, attended that. And and, and Margulies was reported to say, "I didn't know your fans would be so damn sincere." And he claimed on the spot, "We're going to give you a magazine, exactly what you want." It, supposedly, the, the 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 thing was already in development, but uh, that came out of that you know that emergence of science fiction fandom. Because, you know, Mort Weisinger was a big science fiction fan. He came out of science fiction fandom. And although this was a quarterly, it lasted through the... It didn't rack up a lot of issues, but it lasted through the war. And even past the war, it was revived. And it's very, very well remembered as a science fiction dark savage, which is what it was meant to be.
2: And it also had the distinction when they discontinued it because of the wartime paper shortage in late '43. Uh, Early 44, I forget exactly. But anyway, they ran 17 issues all quarterly. When they discontinued, quarterly tells you something about science fiction that was very much a niche, a niche pulp field. Um, When they discontinued it, they actually had so much demand from readers for more Captain Future stories that they ran 10 more stories, in startling stories over a five-year period. And there were people writing to astounding uh, science fiction, which of course was a hoi polloi, s- s- stuffy, big-time science fiction thing. They were talking about Captain Future as though he was written for kindergartners, and it wasn't. It was good science fiction. It was think? good space opera, but it wasn't. Well, but I like space operas. So but that it, for was, me. It,
3: it was juvenile. There's no question, but
2: it was it. much better than, say, Flash Gordon serials. Yeah, or, you know I would, that kind of thing. That. higher level, really. and a team. It was a team. Mm-hmm. Captain Future was not just ca- it was a team. I think what made people think this thing was real juvenile was the name of the character, um, you know, Captain Future, which, yeah, is, which all, is you know a comic book title.
3: But it was juvenile way. Doc Savage was juvenile. You mm-hmm. know, and you had the bickering aides, and you had. They, 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 didn't they do a lot of sports on other planets? You know. Oh yeah. Plane, you know, <laughs> which was, you know, obviously, you know, a stick, and you know, you you don't really do stick in in, in serious stories, but you know, I love the Captain Futures, but the the older you get, the harder they are to read.
1: That's right. So, so Hamilton also was kind of interesting in that, for that and other publishers, he was also writing comic book scripts. Oh yeah. And by the way, we all know from that, the one that we'll just pulled up. That that's the poster in Leonard and Sheldon's apartment in The Big Bang Theory, right? The
2: first Captain
1: Future. Yeah.
2: By the way, before I forget, if you want to read um, some of the early or you know the, the the comic book heroes from um uh, uh, Tony Toland's um, uh, Black New Black Bat uh, uh, magazine reprint magazine, and his Phantom Detective, and for all I know, some others later. <laughs> They publish comic book stories at the end of these pulp reprints, which is kind of a daring thing to do. Um, I wasn't sure that commercially it was something that would work, but Tony proved me wrong, and they've been very successful. Um, I wrote the introduction to the Phantom Detective in number one, and I made the admission that I didn't even know there was a Phantom Detective in Standard Comics when I did the first American, well, first the world's first. Hero by hero, or book by book index of comic book heroes. In 1968, when I was 20 years old, <laughs> and my parents thought I was crazy until they started seeing envelopes with money coming into the mail every day, and I was making good money on these things. <laughs> but anyway, it was—I was trying to say that the comic books Tony is giving a great overview of the comic book. I, this Black Bat pulp, which is coming out, will have a, a story of The Mask. And Tony, is that The Black Bat? It's an adaptation of the first Black Bat novel, branded The Black Bat. Okay, anyway, it, it, it's not Batman, it's The Mask, but it's it's an exciting comics number one, and Black Terror didn't show up till number nine. And it was back when like, Major Mars or something was their lead feature. But they, they definitely um, did a good job with Major this. Major Mars was Captain Futuratic. Oh, I know, but is, is the, the name Major Mars is just too upsetting for words. Um, anyway, the uh, um, it's the kind of thing that made my sixth grade teacher tell me your brain is rotting every day <laughs> you read these things. She may have been correct. But the thing is that Captain Future uh, and the other characters, here you're, you're going to see this stuff adopted, and, and Tony's going to get more and more of these public domain stories and publish them. And I think I needed to say that because they're interesting. And the comic books are really expensive. Um, the Alex Schomburg covers make these comic books always oh, $50, 100 $200. And they're dirt, I mean, they're not, they're cheap, they're very expensive, and that's a big problem if you want to read them. When I bought them all, um, I I, got to tell you this anecdote. There was a store in Sacramento, a used bookstore called the Liberty Bookstore, and they were, they had incredible amounts of Golden Age comics, but they were one of the few stores that had any, what they call Nidor comics in the early 60s. And most fans, even though these characters existed, they, they discovered these, these four guys that published fanzines in the Bay Area discovered this store and bought all their Golden Age comics at 40 cents a comic and sold them for a dollar. A lot to me when I found out about it. I drove to Oakland and, you know, pretty well wiped these guys out. But the Nidor comics like Black Terror and Fighting Man are really fun, like Will said, they're generic, but they're fun to read, and but they're they're so expensive. I bought them for a buck a piece for years, and then all of a sudden, I forget who it was that publicized Schoenberg, Um, Was I forget the person? Maybe somebody had the wise idea to publicize Schoenberg in the 80s, and they went from being a dollar to being twenty dollars almost overnight. It was worse than the gas scams they're running on on automobile drivers. But it's amazing what these comic books have in their. If you've never seen the covers, these things are like Carl Barks, you know, with superheroes fighting the Germans and Japanese, and some of them are just utterly astounding with their their vivid imageries. Silly to a point, racist for sure, but they were very they were very amazing. I
3: wanted to talk about the Black Bat since you brought it up. we we're. we're Tony and I are, are Tony's putting out the Black Bat, but I'm supporting him with you know the uh, background articles. And I interviewed Norman Daniels, who created the Black Bat. They're worth their price. They you are. Know, many years ago, we've done the first two Black Bats in the first volume, which is about to come out, and the second volume we have the second two. After that, we may or may not skip around because there's some interesting writers like Norval Page and Lawrence Dunn, who did Black Bats. But the Black Bat has an interesting synchronicity. In uh, November of '38. Uh, Norman Daniels was asked to create a character to emulate the shadow and he came up with a character called the tiger He was called the tiger because his face was scarred with acid and the scars looked like tiger stripes And Leo Margulies when he got the manuscript said, you know what? I'm going to change this character's name because he's going to black bat detective magazine We're gonna call him the black bat. So that was November December the very end of December or the beginning of January of, of 38 39, Bob Kane was asked to do something to emulate Superman. And his first concept was a character called Birdman, a man with hawk wings and a red outfit. And he brought in his collaborator Bill Finger, a big shadow fan, they both were, and to, to sort of like brainstorm the thing, and they turned it into Batman. Okay? So, um, Simultaneously, completely unknown to each other, these two publishers were producing a bat hero, unbeknownst to one another. They had
2: no idea. They had no (laughs) idea.
3: So in uh, the end of March, Detective Comics 27 comes out with the first Batman story. At the end of April, the first black bat with in in Black Book Detective comes out, and then the lawyers got very active. Um, It happened. The timing was
2: impossible to It's amazing
3: timing. But it,
2: and it, what's interesting is,
3: neither character started out as a bad character. He came out, started out differently, and evolved into a bad character. So, some zeitgeist there. So, um, curiously, there's a writer named F. Whitney, F. Whitney Ellsworth, Whit Ellsworth, who had been an early DC editor, went to Hollywood, came back wrote G-Man novels and Phantom Detectives for uh, Leo Margulies, uh, and then was drifting back towards DC as DC was expanding with Superman and Batman. And I don't know that he was at DC in official capacity, but Margo, uh, Whitney Ellsworth basically brokered
2: an understanding that avoided a lawsuit. He wasn't official yet, Dennis yeah. Sullivan did Vince his says, job, yeah. but he did he, within a few years he was the man. So the deal they struck
3: was that Batman would stay out of the pulps, and the Black Bat would stay out of comic books, and that worked out. But when Nidor started doing comic books, they wanted to adapt the Black Bat, so they had a first story done, and I guess they called him the Owl,
2: mm-hmm. which is there the
3: already was an owl. But then they found out there was already an owl and a black owl. So um, And the
2: owl in Dell comics too. Yeah.
3: So um, they had to change it to the mask. He still wore a kind of owl. Cowl an owl kind of cowl in the first story, and then they changed it in the second and third. But you know, talk about generic comics, you couldn't get any more generic than the mask. So it's the okay. same story as the first black bat story, but he was called the mask. They changed the characters, other characters' names somewhat slightly. Tony Quinn became Colby Quinn. I
1: don't know what that.
3: Tony Colby. Tony Colby, okay. Tony
1: Colby, yeah. Okay.
3: Um, I think Colby Quinn was a byline in the Spicy Pulps, and I don't know who that was. But anyway, so, you know, and and Major Mars was Captain Future. Then they decided to use the name on a completely different character, and they didn't continue Major Mars. It was a very odd uh, comic book house in that stuff would start and get... Ash canned or transformed or renamed and whatever. And, and, and it, it's fascinating from the standpoint of looking at what they had to do to do these comics and how they had adapted, but it's also kind of catches, catch can. You know, not enough stuff, not enough
2: work went into the art of story. When you're a 1960s historian, which I guess we all were, um, you can't believe how difficult it was to have these changes. And to see like Captain Future in startling comics number one was a dead knockoff of Superman. You know, a, he was more of a knockoff of Superman than Captain Marvel ever was. I mean, he was Superman, you know, although at that time there was no lawsuit that prevailed. I mean, if, he, if he'd come earlier, I think there would have been a lawsuit. But um, Captain Future was, you know, on the cover until Fighting Game came along in number 10. A much better character, much more original character. I mean, the ghost of your ancestors making you superpower to fight World War II was just great. That was probably the most creative stories they had, and the, um, but but Captain to to have to to go through these comic books issue by issue and realize for an index, and realize how really different they were than than the DCs or the other quality, you know, the the stable, what I call the stable, productive companies, you know. Uh, Marvel was not stable. Marvel would produce, you know, nine superheroes that last three issues apiece. I mean, everybody thinks about Captain Marvel, but the majority of Marvel's characters are dismal failures for years. But anyway, so Standard had this very unique um, approach, and I think, as Will pointed out, it was something nobody else did because nobody else had the pulse had as many pulp heroes to adopt to comic books, and this included Westerns, right? Westerns. Let's talk a little about the Westerns, Will. Do we? Yeah. Oh, well, <laughs> I mean, we should at least cover them slightly. Mast Rider, How about masked right As long it's as been... you save some time for the green ghost, I want to hear what you think. Oh, the green ghost. Oh, yeah. my god. And for the ghost. Then, then. I'll leave that for Will. Yeah. You know, haven't read one of those in years. Let's talk about the Green Ghost then, let's go. All right,
3: well, you know, there were two Green Ghosts, just as there was a bat before there was the Black Bat. You know, Leo and his, his team, they might run a short-lived character, it would die the death or, 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 or just run its course, but they would revive it with, they would revive the concept with different, different character, different writer. Johnston McCulley did a character called the Green Ghost in Thrilling Detective. We think he did a character called the, 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 black, the Bat, uh, who, who uh, was very similar to Batman in, in his origin. A bat came through his window and he said, I'll be the bat. Um, but he wrote that, uh, whoever wrote it, wrote it under the name CKM CK, Scanlon. We just don't know who it was, but it's the same Johnson McCulley stylistics, the hero, the hood over the head, the gas mask, gas gun type of thing. Well, anyway, The Green Ghost by Johnson McCulley ran its course by 35 or six. And then in 1940, G.T. Fleming Roberts, an up-and-coming writer, um, was picked and tabbed to uh, do the ghost for um, thrilling. uh, George Chance, a professional musician who fights crime. I guess it didn't sell that well. It came out at the same time as Captain Future. It was a quarterly, but but after a few issues, they changed it to the green ghost. They jazzed him up a little bit, gave him a little green light to illuminate his disguised face, so he became the green ghost. And it ran for a few issues, and then it ran in a thrilling, thrilling mystery. mystery, mystery for a while, and I believe it was in the comics as well. Yeah, Most of it was were, in the comics. You know, and you know, it was it was it was pretty interesting. You know, they have if they had a successful name or concept, and it ran its course, it would tend to be revived later, but it completely changed in the revision, which is interesting. It meant that they had a corporate. Corporate memory, corporate history of. Remember that thing that we did four years ago that, you know, people liked and then it kind of died. Let's let's use some of that again. Let's try that Little again. A Little like DC in
2: the fifties when they revived old characters. Yeah. Institutional memory was important. In these kind of things. Yeah. Institutional memory is what I was looking yeah. for. Um, so what what I was going to say, Garen? Did you want to say anything about the creature? No. No, oh, you're okay. doing great. Um, the uh, the other thing about thrilling is that their heroes lasted way longer than by rights they they should have lasted however they started sexing those stories up too and the phantom detective books started featuring muriel havens the reporter the sex bomb reporter that was sort of a, a sexed up lois lane on the covers Right, for a few issues, issues. and the phantom was nowhere to be seen. Well, the last black bat story is is about as gnorrish as any pulp story that ever appeared. Dealt with a prostitution ring, if you can imagine. And I can't remember the name of this story, but it was it was was printed hot, willing, and
3: deadly. That's it,
2: hot, willing, and deadly. Was it Stuart Sterling that wrote it? Stuart Stuart Sterling, the famous mystery writer, very good writer, wrote this story. It's a good story. But Tony Quinn, the black bat, the only mention of the black bat is Tony Quinn's memory of the, his former identity. Now, there was, ne- and to the best of my knowledge, you will correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think there was ever, I wrote a whole 5,000 word essay on this in Comic Book Marketplace and the editor was tearing his hair out trying to get it in the magazine. But it was, I think, the only pulp hero story where the the secret identity of the character, the civilian identity, was, and, and his in this case girlfriend, uh, etc., whatever you want to call her, this story was the only time I can ever that I can ever have ever seen where there was no appearance by the superhero, by the Black Bat. It was just a memory of the Black Bat, and it was a detective story. And actually, it was, a, it was a spicy detective story that, that didn't run in spicy detective. But this story was unbelievably violent and unbelievable. I mean, it was so unlike the Black Bat series that it's almost not part of the canon. It's, it's just a very it's a, a totally unique, you really shouldn't modify, unique. But it's a unique a- a situation in the pulp. Am I right, Will? Uh, you're half right. There was, okay. some, br-
3: <laughs> there was some Bruce Elliot shadows that were the shadow oh, okay. appeared. but as far as never read those. As far as the sex is concerned, you know, for for a hero pulp, that's pretty,
1: pretty bizarre.
3: But and that issue is very
2: rare. It, took, it, you know, it cost me an arm and a leg that one.
1: So, so who wrote that story? Stuart, Stuart, Stuart Sterling. Sterling. Oh, oh, that's that's famous uh, that he wrote a whole
2: right. slew of character detectives right. like. Pedley and Vine and all the, like the hotel detective, the yep. fireman detective, all these. He, Stuart Sterling had a really unusual approach. But anyway, that's what happened at the end of these, these last few pulps. But it's kind of amazing to me that the comic book heroes all, and I mean all, disappeared in 1948 and 49. Not one of them remained. And we we're talking, you know, a couple dozen heroes. They were gone, but the, but the pulp heroes hung around, and it's, it was just different.
3: Well, I think there was momentum, and I th- again, you, you you have to look at the commercial side. You know, Leo and, and Ned Pines, they had the distribution. If you had the distribution, you know, because there's a rumor that one of the reasons Street and Smith folded their pulps is their distributors said, you know what? We don't want to do these anymore. You know, it doesn't matter that they're profitable. They didn't want the lost leaders.
1: Yeah,
3: <laughs> um, so, you know, American news was very powerful until like 55 when I went out of business. So they needed the product, the product was reliable, you know, and, and, and the public liked it. And, you know, I mean, you know, Margulies was, I keep saying, I shouldn't say Margulies because it was Ned Pines at that point, but you know, the last, you know, thrilling pulp was 58. That's pretty late in the day, a decade yes. after most everybody else was yep. folding their tent. The only thing that lasted longer was the the bottom of the barrel, um, uh, Columbia de- Columbia line that lasted till 60, 60 a couple of years ago. But those were you know demi pulps at that point, and they were pr- they were you know pretty low rent things. So they were surviving probably on, on cheapness, where the the thrilling pulps were 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 surviving as you know frontline pulps. There were
2: way more that what I wanted to say about thrillings heroes, both western and superheroes. There were way more of those than any other publisher except Street and Smith, which had these long-running Doc Savage and The Shadow. But um, in combined, those two had over 500 stories. But it was, and Tony's reprinting every last one of them, um, that uh, a monumental effort, I must say. But um, the, uh, uh, the, the heroes in the other pulps, there were never Very many heroes, and Street and Smith and Standard had almost all of them, with a few exceptions. Popular had the Spider and a few detectives and whatnot. But um, you know, Fiction House had Kai Gore, the Jungle Hero, and a few Sheena stories. But it wasn't the same thing. And the other pulps tended to be much more non-character oriented. And Standard and Street and Street and Smith had a ton of of characters you never heard of. Right, I mean, a lot. Yeah, and popular, not so much. Um, although, man, eh, I probably shouldn't say that because Dying Detective did have its its regulars, but they weren't they weren't flashy the way the standard, you know. And the, and in the westerns, um, oh my God, I read a Flash Steel story. And you might think the standard westerns are bad, but this thing had zero characterization. I mean, I've never read a more cardboard... I mean, there was, it was like this person was, was like, like that, you know. I mean, there was no characterization whatsoever. I mean, just awful. I read it only as a means of torturing myself. And it was, it was so bad. Great name, Flash Steel, but probably inspired by Flash Gordon, but it was, which was extremely successful the year or two before in comic strips and serials. But all I'm saying is that um, Thrilling was, was really deserves credit for over a dozen, a dozen major heroes that lasted a long time. Think about this. Jim Hatfield and Texas Ranger, the lone wolf detective, range detective, this guy lasted 206 stories in Texas Rangers. 206 western stories, that's amazing, that's the record. Um, the, uh,
1: uh, and then the paperbacks after that.
2: Oh yeah. well, that 93 paperbacks reprinted, at least yeah. to the best of my knowledge, maybe maybe more. But there was also 75 issues of Range Riders, and um, you know, uh, a mass rider had 88 standard issues after taking over from Ranger publications. And um, there was uh, a lot. Uh, Re- Real Kade had seventy-five issues. Um, you know, there were uh, just a lot of heroes, and, and then the superheroes. What Phantom Detective lost one hundred and seventy, and Dan Fowler one hundred and twelve. I mean, this just didn't happen with the other companies. Oh, how many? Run through the comics quick. Okay. Oh, here's one. Commando Cubs. This is the classic, um, back up to Commando Cubs, go to you for thrilling. Okay, this is the classic capturing Hitler in his bed. Look at the bedspread. <laughs> that's an Alec Schoenberg, that's a typical Alec Schoenberg cover, except that the Commando Cubs only appeared on a couple of covers. It was usually Doc Strange, but I submitted these things, and and... Okay, keep going.
1: That one sure looked derivative of Captain America. a Couple oh, yeah. of
2: early. Here's, years. The fan, here's the here's the here's uh, the Fighting Yank, who, like I said, was a hero by the grace of his ghostly ancestors. That when America needed a hero, they called for the Fighting Yank. Um, he also rode bombs into Tokyo, and and he, he the racist elements of Alex Schomburg. There's no more racist cover than this one, and yet it was World War Two, and uh, you know. This is a, a more typical American, this was like World's Finest comics, it was their version of World's Finest, and sometimes the heroes on the cover and the heroes inside were not the same, which is unusual in the field, to say the least. But anyway, that's, oh, and here's one of my favorites. This is the post, uh, this came out late in 1945 after, I think we hit the stands about VJ Day, but three months after VE Day. This is... The, the, the soldiers got a Nazi souvenir there. And his wife and kid are waiting on by the, the dock there. To, and Doc Strange has a thing saying your job, your college, GI Bill, et cetera. That's probably my favorite Americana cover of any comic book at any time. That, that just epitomizes late 1945. And my dad was mustered out a top ranking officer in the Navy and a Pearl Harbor survivor. He was mustered out at the time that comic book appeared, so it means a lot to me. Um, there's where World's Finest comes in. They they would be like playing football, just like Superman and Batman and Robin, you know. Um, oh, and this is that I'm personally involved in this. That was my first Nedor comic. Guy going into the Air Force had a box of old comics. I bumped into him at the secondhand bookstore on my weekly trip down there to dig into old comics. Where I met Bud Plant when he was 13 years old. And this is the, the result of after World War II. This is 1946. They had the darndest time creating ideas for covers because they didn't have the villains. And they didn't want to just have routine crooks. So here's a kind of a humorous type thing. Oh, this Miss Mask, she ran only a handful of stories and three or four titles. but. She was um, sort of a little, there was a boom in mostly marvel this, but there was a boom in feminine heroes in the late 40s, and she was part of it. And this is something that never happened in a Nidor story. Um, Doc Strange rescued Princess Panther on the cover, and that was kind of the, 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 uh, the passing of the comic book torch when Princess Panther start appearing. Oh, here's another funny qu- where Black Terror can't quite figure out why, why Miss Mask is giving the cop a what-for for a ticket. I like that cover. Oh, and there's Judy of the Jungle on a creature that never existed um, doing, I, I like this cover because uh, uh, unlike Sheena, she's, this actually shows some creativity and not just the usual fighting black people. Okay, any more? Okay. Um, <laughs> that's a good question. <laughs> anyway, the bird's, the bird's interesting. Does anybody have any questions that we have time for? Any? Uh, Tony? Uh, I just think it might be interesting for you to mention something about the Sandgore Comic Shop, which was run by Ned Pine's uh, father in law. Yeah, Richard Hughes. Um, Richard Hughes, whose real name was. Uh, Leo Rosenbaum. Thank you Leo Rosenbaum. Richard Hughes was editor of the ACG Comics which were actually started in 1943 and he created the Black Terror, the Fighting Yank and Pyro-Man and several other characters. I wrote a letter to him in 1966 talking about Magic Man and Nemesis and in the, the the 60s hero boom and I said what's wrong with a hero, you know, what you know, plowing in action with a big wahoo. Let's go back to the old days when heroes were heroes and all that stuff. And he wrote me back a letter and said, I'm so glad you remember me. I, everybody thinks of me as a horror comics writer. And, and then I, after the Comics Code came in, a creative like Herbie and other characters like that. But I love those characters and it was so cool to get a letter from him. Uh, but he was the editor of ACG and the San- Tony, the Sanger shop supplied the art, right? Oh yeah, yeah. Fox and the Crow, Jim Davis, and the art was packaged by Ned Pine's father-in-law. Okay. And that was an interesting um interesting thing. Yes. By the do that? now since they only had the folk character check in the future, why do they use the same for a different character for the comic book? Well you take that.
3: I don't have, I have no clue. I you know, know. It was part of the mystery of why they did what they did. Why did they call Captain Future, Major Mars, yeah. and dropped the character. And why did they start a new Captain Future? Yeah, DC didn't care about that character. I can only <laughs> speculate that maybe Edmund Hamilton was understood to be somehow proprietary about Captain Future and they couldn't use it, but that doesn't make sense. Other people wrote the Captain Future pulp stories. I don't know. There's some weird convolution about that. I just don't get it. You know, I, it's. it's Part of the mystery of that line, why it's interesting from a scholarship point of view, is you see these things done, redone, changed, and you wonder, what were they thinking? And what was the idea behind
2: this? I have a question for you. How many of you have seen an Alex Schoenberg cover? Wow. Okay, so he really is good, right? What? Well, he did did almost all of Timely's, uh, Harvey's, which was Fewer Heroes, Harvey's, um, Needors and Holyoke Continental. He had four contracts and he did almost all the superhero covers for those four companies during the time he. But he, he was probably the most productive, I mean, until you got to Kurt Swan and some of the 50s and 60s artists. In the 40s, I can't think of anybody who produced more superhero covers. More covers, there were more covers by other people, more superhero. Yes. Very little. If I I don't know if I've ever. Have you ever seen any standard original? I think
3: I've seen some later ones, 40s, late
2: 40s. Late 40s, 40s yeah. But not, not those early, early ones. 40s. They were probably they were probably thrown out, and nobody cared in those days. I guarantee you that when they were a dollar a piece in the mid 60s, when I was discovering these things, my father thought I was a blithering idiot to spend a dollar on a 10 cent comic book, and inflation notwithstanding, he thought that was insane. And later on when I told him how much the pile was worth and $20,000 came in, he went, you know, and then Bud Plant and I founded the first freestanding comic book store in 1968 in San Jose, California. And we took in thousands and thousands of dollars in people just, the, the town was growing and it was just ravished. Dad, 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 was a famous businessman in town, and he could not believe that we were that successful. And he came in and he said, "I apologize to you for thinking that you folks were nuts. You, you were really right, and comic books are good." Did you know, do any of oh yeah, yeah. Will you answer that? Um, Sorry. I
0: no, mean. you're great.
2: You're yeah. great. Just a minute, Will. Well, uh, uh,
0: who's staying uh, for the movies tonight? All right, pretty
3: good press. So this would be the last question. Uh, go ahead. Well, Schaumburg did do pulp covers, but I don't. mostly i mostly know him science for his, fiction. science fiction covers and interiors, too, as I recall. Yeah, startling, and, thrilling and wonder. Later, children's books, no, science fiction juvenile covers, but uh, he's today remembered largely for comic books, even though in the day he was probably more famous for his science fiction, because that was the... the more quality material that was being done um, but you know he, uh, he made his mark
2: well thank you very much and for the sake of the dealers um, go buy some uh, pulp reprints uh, and uh, and some of the original pulps from standard give them a chance I think some of you will find they're they're enjoyable I'm not saying they're great but they're enjoyable thank you thank you thank
0: you Lord <laughs> Karen. Oh, yeah, You've been listening to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the Pulp Net, when your next adventure was just a dime away. Please visit us online at thepulp.net. Thank you for listening, and keep reading the Pulps.